Welcome to the Black Sparrow Media Internet Broadcast Network. You are listening to Linux in the Hampshire. LHS is a podcast about Linux, open source, and amateur radio for everyone. Now here are your hosts, Russ, K5TUX, Cheryl, W5MOO, and Bill, NE4RD. Well, hello everybody and welcome. You have tuned in to episode number 292 of Linux in the Hampshire. And we have our deep de- deep dive episode coming up for tonight, and uh, we have the usual cast of characters, I believe, here tonight. Although we're kind of scattered around the globe right now, but I'm Russ K5TUX. I'm Cheryl W5MOO, and I'm Bill N4RD. Oh, you actually got that in like on cue. That's a, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so make sure you steer around the accents and everything. Bill is driving through uh, the tollways of Chicagoland right now, so he'll probably not be too interactive tonight, but that's all right. Uh, but we're, what we're going to talk about tonight a little bit is uh, some stuff that we've talked about on a couple of previous episodes. Um, if uh, you have been listening, you remember a mystery call <laughs> from a caller who... Uh, <laughs> wanted to be unnamed but has since uh pulled off the veil of anonymity and we're going to talk to him tonight a little bit about digital radio about digital radio encryption uh open source in um encryption algorithms and a bunch of other things that have to do with operating digitally on hf radio and in other spaces and who we have our mystery guest, who is no longer a mystery, Rob, K2PBT. So how's it going, Rob? Good evening, everyone. And the intent wasn't to be a mystery guest. I was just like, you know, dropping you guys a little bit of information, hoping you guys would run with it. Well, apparently we ran with it in the wrong direction, which (laughs) is exactly how we operate here. So uh, I think we did exactly what we usually do but probably not what you had intended so what we're Mm going to do is we're going to back up a couple of steps um we are going to get to the crux of the matter which is rulemaking 11831 from the fcc which has to do with digital modes and encryption and whether or not certain modes uh should be allowed and whether they're encrypted communications and all that kind of thing but before we get to that we should probably talk a little bit about the basics of digital mode communication. So leading up to the topic that we had talked about before and the rulemaking, uh, maybe you can give us a little bit of information from your perspective about operating digitally uh, just as part of the amateur radio hobby. Okay. So in the HF, and I'll probably just, you know, keep this to, you know, HF operations. There are other things that happen, you know, VHF and UHF. But there are digital modes that have been used for many years, like RIDI, Radio Teletype, which uses a, a varying 
a frequency, a very varying tones and is sent uh, basically keyboard to keyboard. But, you know, now with the advent of computers and things, people have buffers and can send long strings of messages. But it was originally just a mechanical keyboard to keyboard thing. Other protocols have evolved now. Uh, and the big thing and well uh, what's really been become popular is some of the the amazingly narrow band pro narrow band protocols and narrow band modes that have come up uh also that are very uh robust as far as noise things like psk 31 that came out several years ago and you'd have you could have multiple stations oper you know operating in a in a two kilohertz wide swath of spectrum and everyone's gone crazy over ft8 now which uh is an automated mode uh but it's designed for you know having a control operator present at the screen so it's automated for sending very short messages just enough to uh, get a qso through there are other modes that are using um, commercial modems that use proprietary codes in them. So these are modems that are built by companies that have developed their own protocols that are trade secret, patent encumbered, and some of those are being used for automatic message passing systems uh, used by some people may be familiar with WinLink, um, NTS uses some of these modems as well. And they work in an automatic, automated BBS fashion. So people can log into them, deposit messages, retrieve messages, and they these BBS-like systems even can transfer messages back and forth between each other. So that's just the lay of the land on the, on the HF spectrum. Okay, so these proprietary protocols that do these BBS style messaging systems, they you know they're patent encumbered. Are they encrypted in relation to how the Part ninety seven uh, rules define encryption on the on the amateur radio spectrum? Currently, um, not so much. But if we do. If, if some of the rulemaking uh, proposals go through and it removes the signal of the, uh, the symbol rate limitation and people start using PACTOR 4, PACTOR 4 has an, an ARQ mode, an automatic re um, repeat request, and they also do message compression. And I'll put that in quotes. And the compression algorithm uh, act effectively prevents a third party from monitoring the uh, transactions that are going on or the conversation going on. And that's a function of the way the two end modems negotiate and the way that they can request blocks of data to be reset. So for example, if uh, I have two, two stations going back and forth using a compression algorithm and I'm listening as a third party and I don't hear one of the packets that goes by, I've lost basically the entire conversation. There's no way I can recover that. Whereas the two uh, stations that are in a connected mode, one can request a repeat of the packet. So this is how it is able to keep its transaction complete. So while it is not deliberately encrypted, it is effectively encrypted because there's no 
easy way for a third party to decode that. All right. And I think we're going to get into that a little bit more because that's part of the rulemaking, I think, uh, specifically that we're going to talk about. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about the stuff before we get to Pactor 4 and things like that, because currently there are, there are other Pactor modes that are available. And there are a lot of digital open protocols. So, so what are some of those? And, you know, maybe you can compare and contrast the ones that are open to any of the other ones you're aware of that are not open. I mean, I've, you've already mentioned Pactor itself, but. Well, Pactor is probably the bigger one. Um, I'm not familiar with any others that would be as, as close as Pactor. Um, people spend, I mean, people that want to get into the whole, uh, you know, wind link message passing thing, uh, you know, end up shelling out like between 800 or, you know, $1,200 for just for the modem to be able to do that. So there's a significant investment involved. Uh, other things that are not proprietary that are open, uh, RIDI using the Bordeaux code, um, uh, PSK31, it uses a, you know, a, a, a sort of an ASCII, but it uses a, it, it uses a weighted ASCII, but it's, it's, you know, open and uh, available to anyone. Uh, WSJTX and FT8 and all the other modes that are there, those are all open source. Uh, source code is available. Anyone, you know, can compile them, look at the code. So, so is there anything, I mean, <clears throat> I haven't really taken a good hard look at, at, and read all of the text of, you know, Part 97 of the SEC rules, but Obviously, some of the communication methods have been developed with, you know, proprietary codecs by proprietary, you know, for proprietary applications, but they're using amateur radio spectrum. So mm -hmm. I, I'm guessing that you're saying there's nothing in Part 97 that specifically includes that, which would kind of indicate to me that these modes are, are or at least should be decryptable by a third party, regardless of the method in that it used to create the transmission. So, right. So proprietary or not, as long as they can be effectively decoded by a third party, um, then it shouldn't be a problem. I mean, it's not, it's not in, in the spirit of amateur radio. I mean, because I mean, one of the, one of the tenets of amateur radio and like one of the first paragraphs of part 97 is that amateur radio is one of the purposes of amateur radio is to, you know, enhance and, you know, the, the radio art. And just by adopting all these different commercial uh, offerings, we're really not, you know, we're we're riding on the on the shoulders of giants. We're not uh, we're not doing anything. We're not adding anything to the radio art itself that way. Uh, so as far as like the proprietary modes before Pactor Four, are they easily decodable by a third party? I haven't heard anyone say that they aren't. Uh, the biggest concern is the. Um, uh, some of the newer protocols. There may be some problems with Pactor 3 as well, but I haven't researched that one as much. All right. <clears throat> so that's that's kind of uh, a little bit of a foundation of where we're kind of talking about, like the space that we're talking about. Typically, digital mode communication on the HF spectrum within the amateur radio frequency bands um, and some of the rulemaking that's concerning that. Specifically, we're going to talk a little bit about Pactor 4 in a minute here. But before we get to actually RM11831, which is the, the sort of latest and greatest thing that, that's addressing some of these uh, concerns, 
there was a, a previous uh, NPRM sixteen thirty nine that you mentioned. So maybe you can walk us through what that's talking about. Well, on the service, uh, 1639, I mean, just if you just look at it by itself, it sounds like a great thing. It's uh, some some deregulation for what's perceived as, you know, old limitations as far as board rate and symbol rate. So the FCC rules previously were limit uh, digital transmissions to 300 board or bits per second in, in the HF spectrum. And there we've come you know we've evolved to the point where now we can send more information per bit so that's where this whole symbol symbol rate restriction comes in so currently you're not allowed to exceed 300 bits of information per second but if you went to something of um, an increased symbol rate where you're actually sending let's say you know two or three bits of information in a symbol per second, you can either double or triple your information sending speed. All right. So do you want to sort of define in a technical way the difference between baud rate and symbol rate? And before you do that, actually, let's talk about baud rate. Um, do you, was the original rulemaking uh, or the Part 97 rule, did it have to do with the bandwidth required to send the amount of data, because generally speaking, if you increase the baud rate or symbol rate, the amount the, the amount of bandwidth actually goes up as well. Right. So the original intent was to use the baud rate as a way to limit the bandwidth. So it was a, um, a sideways approach of making sure that, you know, transmissions weren't too wide for, you know, the limited spectrum that you have on HF. So it was limited to 300 baud. But then when things became more, um, you know, more modern and we can, you know, we have, you know, multi-tone uh, symbols and things like that, you can now the, you can send more information in, in less time, but you're exceeding the, uh, I don't know, best way to describe it, you're exceeding the, the information rate. So the rules are written to information rate, not necessarily bandwidth based upon the number of symbols you're sending all right so that's a good place where you can actually differentiate baud rate from symbol rate right so so what is the difference between baud rate and symbol rate so baud rate would be the information of so how can i put this i'm trying to find it. um so when we started out we had two symbols we had one or zero and what the rules said is that you can send 300 bits per bits per second or 300 ones or zeros per second and that became the the information rate so baud rate information rate 300 bits per second then as we've evolved we've come up with either you know with with phase shift keying and with you know using multitones and things like that we can send more than 1 bit in a in a one bit space so while we might be sending uh three we can still send in 300 chunks of information per second that chunk of information now is two bits instead of one bit does that make it any better <laughs> well it makes sense to me i hope it makes sense to everyone else so <laughs> So the question is, do the Part 97 rules specifically address bit rate or symbol rate or neither? 
So part 97 says you can only send, um, I don't remember what the exact uh, quote is, but it comes out to being only 300 bits per second. Okay. So if you're sending 300 symbols per second, that would technically exceed the rules, correct? Yes. Okay. And that is what NP- and our, our NPRM 1639 is, to, is supposed to address, if I'm correct. Right. 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 And again, take it in a vacuum on the surface. And even I thought it was a great idea until I started, you know, talking with other people. Um, it's just the side effects of that that become the problem. Not necessarily. I mean, you know, getting being able to send more data on HF quickly is great. Um, it's just there are other problems that go along with that. Okay, well, here's a perfect point, because you're the only one in this room, as far as I know, who knows what the problems are. So if you could address why, I mean, what makes NPRM 1639 good, i.e. you can send more data quicker, and that sounds like a good thing. But what are the actual problems? What is the issue with that? So there, since the early 2000s, there has been a proliferation of these automated mail gateways that are being used to send, you know, to send email from remote locations. Like if you're, you know, sailing on a boat in the middle of the Atlantic and you want to be able to send an email to someone, you can get set up with, you know, a Pactor modem and an HF rig, and you can send messages in through WinLink into the internet. People from the internet can then send you messages back. The problem becomes with the problem becomes is that it's it will be it's difficult to monitor that stuff as it is now if we start moving to compression and ARQ it'll be almost impossible for third parties to monitor that and no one at that point will know is whether any of this information is appropriate for the amateur bands there are plenty examples right now of people that are either either blatantly or innocently not thinking it through using this service for, you know, business transactions, for example. Right. Which is specifically prohibited in part 97 rules. So clearly, correct. um, so is there, so what is, what is the disposition or the direction of NPRM 1639 at this point? Well, it's a, it's a it's a notice of proposed rulemaking. Ru- sorry, notice of proposed rulemaking. So the FCC has already said, okay, we think this is a good idea. This is what we want to go forward with, and it's open for comments. So people can send in comments on whether they think this is a good idea or a bad idea, and then eventually the FCC will act on it and either you know approve it or send it back for more review. All right, and what is your position on it? You 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 sound like you are not for it. <laughs> I am not for it in the current form, uh, unless there are provisions put in to make sure that we can monitor everything that's going on and prevent interference, prevent um, a plethora of these automated mail gateways from popping up. And, you know, especially, especially in, you know, the CW weak signal, uh, low bandwidth portions of the HF allocations. All right. Fair enough. So what is your assessment of the current tenor of NPRM 1639? Are are people aligning with you or the opposite, or is it kind of down the middle? It depends who you talk to. Um, (laughs) 
yeah, like anything. Um, you know, I, I live in my bubble. Other people live in their bubbles. Um, so there's no way of knowing. Right. I mean, I'm just trying to get your sense of it. Do you think um, people are aligning against or aligning for? Something similar to this came up uh, back in the early 2000s, and it, you know, it raised an uproar like is starting to, you know, the, the, the pot is starting to simmer right now. And back then, the AWRL backed off on their request. Um, I don't know if that's going to happen this time because, you know, the climate in, in Newington has changed considerably. So no way of knowing, but I, I, if I were a betting man, I'd probably say it'll probably move forward. Okay. Fair enough. So NPRM, the 1639 then sort of leads into, uh, RM 11, because they're addressing similar issues. And that was the thing you called in to address specifically when you, uh, when you sent your voicemail. So, uh, maybe you can just tell us like as succinctly as you can, what, uh, RM 11, says. Okay. So RM 831 in, in its crux looks for assurances that any protocols and any coding mechanisms used on the amateur bands can be monitored by a third party um, to ensure that, you know, uh, everything that's being said and everything that's being passed is appropriate. Okay. So, so the idea then is that the rulemaking says that that should be the case, and that's the idea, that if it goes through and a rule is made or a change is made in Part 97, that it will make sure that the communication of this type will be open and decodable by a third party. Correct. That that's the intent between uh, yeah with uh, a thirty one. Okay. And does that suggest that the Part ninety seven rules do not currently allow for that? Um, no. The uh, Part ninety seven rules now say nothing about the um, the details in how. Uh, communications can be coded or decoded. The only hint of that is that things shouldn't be, uh, the meaning messages shouldn't be intentionally obscured. Okay, so that would suggest to me at least that a message should not be subject to an encryption algorithm. Of course, there is the provision that satellite telecommand can be encrypted because you don't necessarily want people being able to intercept, decode, and send spurious satellite telecommand messages. Correct. Um, but for general use, it's the idea of the Part 97 rule says that everything else should be out in the open, mm -hmm. freely decodable and accessible. Correct. Okay, and so do you even think that RM11831 is necessary? I mean, because don't the rules sort of already say that it should be this way? <laughs> uh, not well, but not. It doesn't. It doesn't specifically specifically <laughs> say that the protocols would have to be open and published. So right now, and we don't like right now. Um, it, they could consider the compression algorithm they're using as trade secret, for example, at which point, you know, how, you know, how do you, how do you decode that if you don't know how to decode it? Uh, that's fair, but then wouldn't you say it would be by default disallowed on the amateur radio frequencies? <laughs> uh, you, you would think, but uh, I think it just, I think 11.831 just looks to make that, you know, explicitly required. 
Okay, so and I believe you said this before that you believe RM eleven eight thirty one at least in part directly references things like Pactor four and may reference other things as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so how does it address Pactor four? What specifically about Pactor four is an issue, uh, and how does it like seek to fix the problem that we're talking about? Well. It- 830, I mean, the um, 831 doesn't specifically call out Pactor 4. It just says that uh, any any necessary software must be provided by the developers, must be open source, unencumbered by patent licensing fees, royalties, copyrights, in keeping with the intent and the spirit of amateur radio. All right. So the language of this uh, rulemaking as you're familiar with it, where do you stand on whether you think it should become part of the rules or not? Oh, I, I agree that it should become part of the rules for, for you know, the reason stated being that, you know, it, it, that there's no, there's no provisions to protect against, um, you know, either, you know, un, unintentional obscuring of messages through through compression or you know unknown out you know unknown coding schemes or unknown algorithms okay so you said before that pactor 4 could be essentially undecryptable if you're only able to hear one side of the conversation well it's it's undecryptable if you don't well it's undecryptable if you can't capture all the packets that are are sent in a stream so think of it. Think of a zip file. If you lost ten percent of a zip file, you can't decode that that zip file at all. Whereas plain text, if I lost ten percent of the characters, I can still pretty much get the full meaning of the conversation that's going on. Right. Certainly. So Pactor Four in its current form, do you think it it violates the rule? Like, if you actually had all of the packets in a Pactor Four conversation right now, could you decode it? Um, as a lay had, person as, with, <laughs> I, I, I would probably say yes, but I just don't know what their compression algorithm looks like. And if that's, you know, if it's publicly available. Okay. Well, presumably if it's not publicly available, that would already violate the rules, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, not necessarily because it's called a compression algorithm. And it's not, you know, it's not in, you're not intentionally obscuring the message. You could say, I'm not. You know, I'm just compressing the message. I'm not obscuring the message. But if you don't tell me, you know, what your compression algorithm is, well, then it's effectively encrypted. Yeah, see, that's kind of where I stand on it. If you're doing something to a transmission that no one has the reverse engineering of, Mm -hmm. then you're essentially making it undecryptable. Even if you're... Even if you're saying, oh, I'm not doing this intentionally, I'm just doing this transform on the data so that I can get it across the bandwidth either more economically or faster or whatever. But if no one has the ability to decrypt it, then it's encrypted. (laughs) Right. And and I would agree with that. But I I don't. But the way the rules are written, you couldn't. I mean, now you're, you know, it becomes legalese trying to, you know, interpret you know, paragraphs in, in the rules, whereas A31 would make it, you know, a requirement that, you know, any protocol needs to be documented and free and open and unencumbered. All right. Well, 
you're on a program that would suggest or that would say that any protocol of this type should definitely be freely available, open, accessible, and uh, you know, modifiable by the general public. And even better, it would be copyleft. But mm-hmm. I, I think the Part 97 rules are probably not going to go that far. So, do you think RM 11A31, if it actually becomes a change to Part 97 rules, will actually fix the problem? Uh, it will because it will specifically. I mean, if if you can't if if the you can't have trade secrets at that point, so and all of the algorithms have to be publicly available. All the algorithms have to be um, unencumbered in patent, so we can go, so people could go out and write their own open source programs to do all this decoding rather than buy eleven hundred dollar modems. Uh, yeah, I think it would have a a, a big benefit. So if it if it becomes a rule change, do you think Pactor four becomes open or it goes away? I think Pactor four would have to be curtailed, but I think that that would you know if you if you couple that with uh, removing the symbol rate, that opens the door for someone to go out and develop a Pactor four like protocol that has all the benefits of Pactor four that isn't Pactor four that's open and available for everyone to use. And that, to me, sounds like a wonderful thing. So before I ask my next uh, question or two, I'm going to address the chat room and Bill and Cheryl. And if they have any questions uh, for you, they should definitely formulate them in their mind because I'm sort of running out of mine. Uh, and I want to make sure that everyone gets a chance to uh, ask a question of you if, if they have one, for sure. Um, so let's go back to the voicemail because I don't remember the exact uh, you know text of it. Uh, or the uh, the exact gist of it. So, is there is there some part of the thing that you wanted to tell us that I have not yet addressed, or did I get to like the salient points about what you wanted to say about this <laughs> rulemaking? Well, I mean, and that's all the salient points. So, eleven eight thirty one looks to you know r- reduce interference by being able to identify uh, stations that are operating in an, in automatic mode and looks to be able to allow amateurs to monitor their spectrum so that they can see, you know, what the spectrum is being used for and how it's being used. Is there, is there any part of this rulemaking that you think would curtail any part of the amateur radio hobby, or is it just only going to be a benefit? No, I think I, I can't see any, I can't see any downside to this. Um, the i mean the the it it disrupts the status quo that's the that's the biggest thing and that's why it's being um it's being fought against because there is no open alternative right now and i would think that if this rule went into effect it would you know uh you know provide the uh, impetus to actually you know for some you know smart guy to go out there and develop a protocol that would be able to take its place yeah, well, actually, I'm all for that. Actually, if the rulemaking, you know, disables something that's proprietary, closed source, black box, and turns it into or pushes it to some developers who actually take the technology, open it to the public, and make something better out of it, I'm actually 100% for that. So, right. um, and I and I think most people in the amateur radio hobby would say the same thing because you're you're only going to make something better by putting it out in the open. And allowing everybody to have eyes on it, and it's what we talk about in the open source world that 
the more the more hands, the more developers, the more eyes you have on it, the safer it is, the better it is, so on and so forth. So, I mean, obviously, Pactor Four is a good thing. People like using it. It does it does what it's supposed to do, but that doesn't mean there isn't some way to do it better and in the open. Correct. All right, fantastic. So I will take a quick look to the chat room and to i'll like look across my desk at cheryl and she's obviously dealing with other stuff so it's yeah i'm putting fires out via text message right now okay well i won't worry about you for questions but i will see if bill hasn't like crashed yet and see if he has any questions he wants to ask of you (laughs) (laughs) no i haven't crashed yet but uh chicago traffic is just wonderful i love no interest discussion i I think you really hit all the points and uh it's uh, really going to be interesting to see uh if this goes through is there a timetable on uh, 11831 no it's just it it, it's one of these things where the fcc just puts it I i don't know if there's any specific date but these things could go on for years and this was just introduced last year um for example you know 16239 was introduced back in uh 2016 yeah okay so so this is kind of like an rfc in the technical world this is uh just something they put it out there it's like here's an idea is this a good idea do we want to make a change blah blah blah. give us some feedback and we'll make some decisions at some point in the future mm-hmm. all right fair enough so i'm going to look quickly to the chat room see if anybody wants to type out a question really quickly if anyone has uh, something they want to ask you before i let you go because i i really think we've hit it and you know, since we kind of beat around the bush on this a couple of episodes, uh, for a couple of episodes in the past, I, I think we've actually kind of nailed down really all the information we need to have about this. Um, you know, I, I've sort of read the text of 11A31, but I hate reading legal. It's not, it's not really legalese, but you know, it's got that, it's got that feel to it. And, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's always aggravating to read stuff that's like unnecessarily wordy and overblown. <laughs> um, but I definitely have a sense of where this is going, and I think uh, it's probably worth advocating for at least where from from the direction we're coming from, where things should be open and clear, uh, and and available to the public and and amateur radio in general. I think should be that way as well. So I think it aligns perfectly with the amateur radio service. Agree. I, I think anything that's that's happening on the amateur bands should be, you know, should be open source, should be unencumbered with patents, so that you know it's part of what we're supposed to do is experimentation and advancing the radio art, not just you know, you know, grabbing the uh, the, the latest you know, flashy thing from the commercial world. Yep. Absolutely. And uh, I think we've I think we've overcome the stream delay at this point, <laughs> so uh, I don't see anything forthcoming from the chat room. So with that, we do have one piece of, or one announcement we're going to wrap up with, and you're welcome to stay for that if you want to. Uh, but with that, I think we're going to let you go and get on with the rest of your life, unless there's something else you want to say or or point out or uh, maybe leave some contact information or whatever. Well, sure. Uh, one thing I want to do is I want to shout out to Ted Rappaport, N9NB. He was the person that I had met at the uh, RCA Technical Symposium back in November, who was, um, you know, very, um, very knowledgeable about this, very vocal, and got me interested in it. And I've been, I've basically been, you know, riding on his shoulders. I've been following all the things that he's been putting out. So he's the actual expert. <laughs> <laughs> Well, fantastic. I think you uh, filled his shoes, at least for this interview, very nicely. 
Very good. All right. So with that, I guess we will let you get on with the rest of your life. And I really appreciate you coming on the show and, and talking to us about this issue. And um, I guess we're going to hope that some rulemaking actually changes and more of the open or the amateur radio service becomes open. You got it. All right. And that's uh, let's see. Let me let me see if I get this right. It's Rob Rashesk. That's right. Excellent. K-A-2-P-B-T. Thanks a lot for coming on the show tonight. Yeah, thank you All very right. much. All right. Thank you. Bye now. Thanks. All right. Very cool. So we really want to thank Rob for, for coming on and talking about that. I think uh, we we think we finally ferreted out all the, the relevant information <laughs> instead of like beating around all the bushes and everything. This is great. Uh, but before we wrap up the show, we do have one announcement. Um, this comes from Frank K4FMH of the ICQ podcast. We're, we're hearing a lot from these guys lately, but um, they've apparently started a new thing. He sent me a, a press release about a new award that they're that they're co-sponsoring or something. I'm going to read a little bit of the press release they sent me uh, called At Homebrew Heroes. And let's see, let me let me pull up the press release here it says uh award for top homebrew designers and amateur radio has been announced uh this comes out of Ridge, ridgeland mississippi uh today the icq podcast announced a partnership in the founding of the homebrew heroes award by three members of the podcast this annual award is to recognize persons groups or organizations who help define the frontiers in amateur radio technology through the long-standing tradition of homebrew construction it is housed at the separate website, homebrewheroes.org. Uh, and there's a whole lot more to this. Let me, let me just read the end, the end part of this down at the bottom. Uh, it says, quote, commercial companies have begun signing on to donate prizes to the recipients, uh, said Frank. Uh, Digilent Incorporated, uh, a national instruments company, immediately told us they would contribute their highly successful analog discovery to test device. Um, other companies have expressed positive interest in evaluating the right products. And then it goes on to talk about the ICQ podcast and everything. Um, so we will make this press release available. Well, we'll not make the press release available, but if you want information about this new award, I'm assuming they're going to take nominations and all that kind of thing, but they mentioned, uh, in the press release and, uh, previously in the email from Frank homebrewheroes.org. Uh, there's contact information there and more information about the award. So if you want to find out all about all about this uh, and the co-sponsorship of ICQ podcasts and all that, then please check out that website. And, you know, there you go. Oh, and in the chat room, uh, Rob, let us know that his email address, if you want to contact him about RM11831 or anything else for that matter, I suppose, uh, it's KA2PBT, that's Kilo Alpha 2 Papa Bravo Tango at net. So there you go. And with that, I think we're about to the end of the program. We don't really have anything else. Uh, so, Bill, are you still with us? I'm still here. All right. So how close are you to Dawn now? Uh, it says I'm uh, about 24 minutes away. Woo! All right, 24 minutes away. So Bill is on his way to the National uh, Scouting Jamboree in West Virginia. He's uh, currently he's, uh, currently good. What's that? Oh, the World so Scouting Jamboree. The World Scouting Jamboree. Right. Yeah, as you were saying, you you were wrong. Sorry, I said sorry. I'm sorry. He said national. That I, was like I know. I, I totally screwed up. So, so the World Scouting Jamboree, uh, which will be taking place in West Virginia. 
and he's uh, currently going through Chicago land and we hope you have a safe trip out there, Bill. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. All right. Is there anything you want to say about the world scouting jamboree before we uh, end the program? I know you like talking. I know about you the like scouts. talking about this. Yeah. No, sorry. <laughs> Disconnected again. <laughs> it does right. not like me. All right. But well, anyway, yeah. So well, I'm down to the world scout jamboree. It's in, uh, you know, the summit Bechtel reserve and, uh, we're going to be on the air probably sometime by the end of this week. Uh, but the scouts show up, uh, the 22nd and operations will run through the first. So, uh, be a lot of, uh, a lot of hearing NA one WJ on the bands, uh, pretty much everything from 80 to, uh, satellite and D star and echo link. And you can find all the information on K2BSA.net. All right. Fantastic. Well, you have a safe trip out to West Virginia. I'm sure we'll keep in touch. And for everybody else out there who's been listening, thanks once again to Rob KATPBT for some great information. And we will have an episode again next Monday night. So make sure to tune in for that. And until then, this has been episode number 292 of Linux in the Hamshack. I'm Russ K5TUX. I'm Cheryl W5MOO. And I'm Bill NE4RD73. for listening to this episode of Linux in the Hamshack. LHS is a community-sponsored podcast. The live show is recorded every Monday night at 8pm Central Time, plus or minus QRL. Connect to the live stream at url.bcts.info stroke LHS Live. Our website is located at lhspodcast.info You can support the podcast by visiting the LHS Patreon page patreon.com stroke LHS podcast or by using the contribute link on the homepage. Get in touch via social media. We have a presence on Discord, Facebook, IRC, Twitter and YouTube. Our IRC channel is hash LHS podcast on the Freenode network and the Discord invite link is url.bcts.info stroke discord. You can also drop us an email info at lhspodcast.info or leave us a voicemail at 1-909-LHS-SHOW. That's 1-909-547-7469. Visit the online LHS merchandise store at shop.lhspodcast.info for fun and fashionable show-themed merchandise. Become an ambassador and represent LHS at a local Linux convention or hand Email ambassadors at lhspodcast.info for more information or visit the homepage for details. Until next time, remember to always heed your hedonism.
Linux in the Hamshack and the Linux in the Hamshack logo are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License.